0: get access to exclusive content and become part of the team you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash that's patreo dot com hey everyone i'm rod roddenberry and you're listening to trek fm
1: these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored
2: welcome everyone to another episode of literary treks our dedicated books and comic show i am one of the hosts matthew rushing and with me as he is always my friend from a little bit farther north than i am dan gunther
0: hey matthew good to be here again uh excited as always to talk about one of my true passions star trek books and comics
2: yeah. You know, I really like both, too. It is definitely a, a passion of mine. And, you know, one of the exciting things, Dan, is something we haven't got to do in a long time on literary treks, and I was thinking about this the other day, we just we haven't had, I feel like, a lot of news recently. No, that's very true. Yeah. Yeah. And not only have we not had a lot of news, we haven't had any book covers to judge. Have you noticed that? I have. It's been, yeah. It- I don't know how
0: long it's been, but it feels like it's been forever since, you know, we've gotten a chance to judge a book by its cover.
2: Well, you know what's so exciting? I feel like Star com was feeling our pain, and they must have realized that that was happening. And plus, you know, when we talked to Kirsten, she said that the book cover was going to be coming out soon for a Pocketful of Lies and that she had seen it, she liked it. Well, guess what, folks? It is finally here. And Dan, I... I don't know what to say. So I think you should start us off because I'm, I'm a little bit lost for words here.
0: <laughs> well, Matthew, I mean, I, I have to be honest. I saw this news break earlier today and I've just been clicking back to it and looking at it and it's beautiful. Like it's really gorgeous. It's really unique. Uh, very colorful. I feel like A lot of the covers lately have been depicting something very specific within a book or a specific idea or event. And this one, yeah, it looks very unique to this novel. It's not just another, you know, static shot of Voyager or something like that. It's really, there's, it's, I don't know, why don't you describe exactly what is on this cover? Because it's just beautiful.
2: Oh my gosh. Um, This cover has two Voyagers on it. One Voyager on the bottom of the cover, and the other Voyager in this like milky mirage at the top. And there seems to be a quite epic, massive explosion type thing in the middle of green light. And then above the Voyager in this, you know, milky reflection. He also seems to be some kind of maybe planet as well as a timeline. And Dan, you were mentioning on the other side of the page that you felt like you might know where this timeline came from.
0: Yeah, Matthew, this looks really familiar. And I wonder if our listeners would remember the Voyager episode Year of Hell and Anorax uh, had his huge time ship. That could erase things from history. And on the back wall of the bridge, there was this graphic that showed the various timelines being skewed uh, with every kind of incursion they made. And these lines that are chasing this mirrored voyager really, really look like that graphic. So I'm wondering if that's a really big clue as to what this novel going to deal with.
2: Well, you also mentioned, Dan, something else about just the blurb we got here. Why? Will you read that for everybody and then give everybody your thoughts on that? Because you were kind of blowing my mind before. I mean, uh, you were you were pulling some things out that I just wasn't remembering. All right, for sure. Well, the blurb goes, The Full Circle
0: Fleet has resumed its unprecedented explorations of the Delta Quadrant and former Borg space. Commander Liam O'Donnell of the USS Demeter makes a promising first contact with the Nihydran, humanoid aliens that are collectors of history. They rarely interact with the species they study, but have created a massive database of numerous races, inhabited planets, and the current geopolitical landscape of a large swath of the quadrant. When an exchange of data is proposed via a formal meeting, the Nahydron representatives are visibly shaken when Admiral Catherine Janeway greets them. For almost a century, two local species, the Rilnar and the Zal, have fought for control of the nearby planet Sormana, with both sides claiming it as their ancestral homeworld. The shocking part is that for the last several years the Rilnar have been steadily gaining ground thanks to the tactics of their current commanding officer, a human woman who appears to be none other than Catherine Janeway herself. Well, what's really cool about this, Matthew, is the alien races they mention in this blurb, too, uh, they're also from Year of Hell. So I'm really thinking, like, they're kind of minor races in that episode that we don't really see, but they get mentioned. Uh, Voyager, at one point, uh, makes uh, an alliance with the Nahydron and another species whose name I I can't remember right now. But, you know, this is all pointing to Year of Hell, so... I'm thinking that should maybe be our homework to watch Year of Hell before this novel comes out.
2: Well, you know, I can't say I'm upset about that since I think Year of Hell is one of Voyager's absolute best, honestly. Agreed, Um, yeah. Except for the ginormous reset button, or should I say explosion crash the ship thing at the end, but still really good, really good. And um Honestly, I, it is an episode of Voyager, the, that two-parter I, I can watch mm-hmm. just about any time. So uh, the fact that um, somehow Kirsten might be following up on that mm-hmm. with this book and twisting that all together, uh, wow. Uh, really getting an insight into how her mind works <laughs> here and just how much she must watch a Voyager to be able to pull all of these very tenuous threads you know like voyager is is so much more of anthology piece Mm -hmm. like the original star trek in some ways to pull all these things together is is really fantastic so i honestly cannot wait to read this uh it's going to be available on january 26th so i am so looking forward to the opportunity to dive into some more voyager and uh Wow. Yeah, Kirsten seems to really be upping her game here. And um remember she told us in the interview that the crew was really going to need a vacation after this. <laughs> oh yeah. Ah, yeah. This um I don't know, but this sounds like it could get downright mean. Mm-hmm. And One nasty might even with say what hell-ish. could happen here. <laughs> Yes. Nice call. Nice call.
0: And, uh, you know, we know how much of a of an enemy of the reset button Kirsten Beyer is. So I'm wondering if she's maybe going to undo the biggest reset button in Voyager history. I, I don't know how, but I'm kind of wondering what she's got up her sleeves for this
2: one. So could she be bringing the Crenum back somehow? Ooh, that would be cool. Like, Yeah. <laughs> Uh, if anybody can find a way it's Kirsten. So I'm, I'm really excited to, to dive into this one. And, uh, we'll put the link in the show notes for everybody. So you can check this out at star com. Uh, it's already on the Babel conference. I put it there cause I just couldn't wait. So hopefully you've checked it out and man, it, it really is fantastic. We'll, Dan, before we dive in, we've got another great interview. We just keep rolling with the interviews here on Literary Treks. I just feel so blessed. And and this week, we've got James Swallow with us to talk about his latest Titan novel, and I can't wait to do that. Before we get into that, we do want to remind everybody that Literary Treks is a part of Trek FM. It's a network that has 20 different shows on it, all devoted to Star Trek and beyond. (laughs) And that's not Star Trek, that beyond. It's... Of course the six oh two club with everything geeky. We cover every part of Star Trek behind the scenes, each of the individual shows, books and comics obviously here, behind the scenes with uh, the creators of Star Trek and their other work. So you check that out on Commentary Track Stars. Check that out on Commentary Trek Stars. It it's just endless what we have here for you on Trek FM. So go to itunes.com slash FM. You'll find all the shows there. We're a feature provider in iTunes. You can also check at trek.fm. That is our website and see all the things that we have for you, all the show pages that we've got for you as well with all links that we have and information about the different episodes. And, of course, we're on Twitter at FM, Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Um, you can find us on our listeners-only discussion group, which is the Babel Conference. Just type Babel into the search field on Facebook. Facebook or click discussion on any of the menu bars at trek.fm our website we have the goodreads group which allows you to know what we're reading what's upcoming what we've already done with the bookshelves and have discussions with other listeners about what they're reading in the star trek universe and then of course if you'd like to leave us a voicemail Go to the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. And if you'd like to send us an email, go to trek.fm slash contact. Choose a show. or give you the opportunity to send that to us here at Literary Tracks. So we'd love to have that from you. Well, I think, Dan, it's time to dive in and talk to James Wallow.
0: I'm pretty excited about this interview. Uh, this was an excellent novel, and I can't wait to hear what James has to say about it.
2: Well, Dan, you know, one of the best parts uh, of Literary Treks, and I think we say this all the time, is that we get to talk to the authors, and I, I have to say that I feel like recently we have just had an incredible run of authors, I mean, Peter David... Kirsten Beyer. We just had David A. Goodman on. I mean, the list just keeps going on and on and we get <laughs> to add to that today.
0: Definitely. Yeah, it's we really had the pleasure of, of a lot of authors coming through and, and talking to us. And yeah, especially today's author, James Swallow, uh, one of the best Star Trek novels that I've read this year. Uh, so it's definitely a treat to have you on today.
2: Oh well thank you guys that's that's a really nice and it's it's always a pleasure to come on the show and chat with you Well James uh okay there've been some some different titan novels that have come out uh you know we've we've had uh, absent enemies and then we had titan in takedown and you know of course you had worked with titan in the fall series and so it, but it feels like it's been a while since you know Titan has kind of had a proper Titan novel where it's doing titany things. <laughs> um, and uh but a lot has changed for for you kind of putting Titan back out on a on a an interesting course. and so I kind of wanted to to hear you talk about now that we're back with just a Titan novel, and it's not you know being connected to some larger thing. Where are we going? You know, we're charting a whole new course. This is a very different, you know, Titan than we've seen before.
1: Yeah. So the the this is kind of like I felt like in a way it's it's almost like a season break story. Is that we had the end of the last season with um with all the big events that were taking place in the fall, and then you have uh, the events of Absent Enemies and Takedown, kind of ramping that up, and and you know, getting your your, your nice kind of coda to that sort of story. And this was very much with sight unseen was, you know, we're moving into a new phase, a new season of stories. And uh, to begin with initially, you know, I had a conversation with, with my editor, uh, Margaret Clark, and I said, well, look, how are we going to do this? Are we going to just send the Titan back to where they were? Are they going to go back to the, the outpasta, you know, the gum nebula and, and you know, back to where we'd seen them exploring in you know, deep, deep space, or are we going to do something different? And I was all for, you know, taking them back to where they'd been. And, and Margaret said to me, you know, we have, to, we have to reflect that change. We have to make sure that, you know, we, we can't just kind of reset things. We have to make things different. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that, you know, she was, she was making a very good point there. So I wanted to try and get back to the, the classic sort of style of the, you know, the strange new worlds, new, lo- new life, new civilizations, exploratory feel that the early Titan books had but not by taking them back to where they'd been before and it kind of put me in this in this thing or in this position where i'm being kind of pulled in two different directions because you know i want to give titan stories where they can explore strange new worlds but also i don't want to send them out so far away that they can't come back and have stories where they can connect with uh, the federation and and other sort of ships and crews so I went back to, to TOS you know because one of the original ideas for Titan was it was supposed to be uh, hmm, you know a, a yeah. TOS style story in in a TNG world. And of course if you look at um, the original series you know they do strike the balance between those stories of exploration and the stories where they go back to the federation. And and that was very much in in, in my thoughts when uh, I was I was putting together Sight seeing so the it's kind of a book of two halves I think in in a ways so, you know the book opens up with the kind of setting out the table and saying, okay, this is the change situation that these characters are in. And, and there are a few changes, you know, people get promotions and, and uh, positions get changed around, new characters are introduced. And then the second half of the story is, is them going out and, you know, uh, coming across uh, an alien species and facing a new threat. And that's kind of like setting out the, the I guess, the mission statement for what will hopefully be uh, a new season of Titan Stories.
2: Well, and that's I think what's really cool about it is that it's it's giving us uh a new opportunity and a new way to explore these I think these characters um and opening up a lot of different doors and and that's really cool because you know uh we had we'd obviously seen a lot of just the the base exploration of for Titan but now it's it's not just the exploration for Titan, but it's really also getting to really dive deep into the characters as exploration as well.
1: Yeah, I mean that's always been part of, of what Titan is, is there's the kind of ongoing, for want of a better term, kind of soap opera of of the the lives of these characters, <laughs> you know, and, and the, the trials and tribulations that they go through in their personal lives, as well as the sort of the larger question of, you know, uh, the the exciting stories that the characters get involved in. And that was very much something that that I wanted to play with in this story. So, you know, there is a kind of C story in here, which is about some of the characters, you know, saying, well, you know, this is my personal circumstances and and these circumstances are changing and I'm going off in a different direction. Something I'm very fond of as a writer is, is is mirroring stories, is having a kind of micro story and a macro story and having each story reflect an element of the other, even if they are about completely different things. When you drill down, the idea of the story is, is the same. And I think that's very much going on all through all of the subplots in Sight Unseen. It's characters being put in new circumstances and having to deal with those circumstances. And then at the end of those stories saying, well, okay, I'm going in a new direction now.
2: You know, two of those characters that, and, and character arcs um, that really are changing and, and growing are Riker and, and Veil. Vale. And, you know, they have some things to get used to that they weren't necessarily thinking were coming just yet. I mean, Riker obviously still dealing with his promotion to being an admiral uh, and trying not to be a bad moral, Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which great reference there. Love to, that that to, term was
0: in there. That was
2: great. <laughs> and, you know, Vale has always wanted to be a captain, but I don't think that she quite thought this was what it was going to be like.
1: Yeah. And, and I, I totally wanted to do that. That's, you know, the, the, the thing that Riker goes through in, in Poison Chalice, which is where, you know, kind of, right, you're an admiral now. And he's like, wait, what? You know, and, and he doesn't get a chance to sort of think about how he's going to deal with it. In a way, he kind of forces Vale to go through the similar situation where he says, you know, you wanted to be captain of the ship. Well, now you are. And you've got to deal with it. And, and it's the thing that she's always wanted, but she didn't want it like this. And there's a you know, some some of the events that take place through the story put her right at the sharp end of what it means to be a commanding officer and sending people into harm's way. And she has to deal with it and she doesn't really get time to think about it. And I think what really attracted me to the idea of of putting those two characters in that situation is it takes a relationship that we've already seen and developed, which is Riker as the commander and Vale as the first officer, and it puts them in a completely new situation. Where it's still, you know, he's in charge of her and she's a lower ranking officer. But now the power dynamic has changed because it's Veil's ship. And so, you know, technically she has the last word. But Riker is on board that vessel and he's using it as his kind of mobile center of operations in his new role as a as a kind of admiral of, of the of the sector. And new tensions are coming up. And I think what I found was interesting was the idea of of looking at Riker and thinking, well, now he's no longer thinking about a crew of, you know, a thousand odd people on board a starship. Now he's thinking about an entire sector of space. So he's got to be a big picture guy, but there's Vale. And now Vale is thinking, well, this, this ship is now my family. This is, this is my primary consideration and that's going to bring them
2: into conflict. And that's exactly what happens in this story. Well, and (laughs) Riker is also thinking about his own family. Who's, on the ship, and that complicates things even more.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's 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 all of that stuff going on there as well. Is you know the the the, the situation with 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 Riker and Deanna and, and their daughter Natasha. You know, you've got all of the family issues there. Is how would you deal with that if you know your family's in harm's way? Especially as well, you know, Deanna's not a stay-at-home mum. You know, she's got all of her sort of situations to deal with as well. You know, she's busy with her own set of issues and and sort of um, adventures that she's going on. So it is, you know, it is a very much a kind of uh, a multi-layered sort of thing. But it, what attracted me was the idea of, of looking at the, the classic Star Trek Badmiral character. You know, he's a guy who comes in, throws his weight <laughs> around, right? You can't do this. You can't do that. And the captain says, "Bah, you don't know what it's like being out of the sharp end. You don't have any experience of that sort of thing. You know, You're just some guy who warms a desk, you know? And of course, <laughs> we know that's not true with Riker because we've seen Riker mm-hmm. go through the sharp end of things. But now Riker is saying to himself... I've got to be that guy. I've got to be that guy with the big picture views. I can't think like a captain anymore. And Vale is in the opposite situation where she's like, now I do have to think like a captain. And I think that's, that's interesting to put two people who, who were very simpatico into a situation where they now have, they, they're still those people, but now they have to think differently. And that may bring them into situations where friction gets generated between the two of them. And that's where great drama happens.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I really loved the parts where you kind of used that. And even the, in the very beginning, Riker's very cognizant of it when uh, when the Dynak asked him to bring the ship home immediately and Riker's basically thinking, well, you know, if I was the captain, I'd probably chafe against this order too. But, you know, now I've got a bigger picture to look at. I've got to worry about the relationship between the Federation and these people. And it just really shows that his scope of... of the issues he deals with is a lot larger than it was before.
1: Yeah, I think it's a that's an interesting place to put uh, a character. I mean, it, it's not something I think we've really seen. Maybe I guess if you look at the the Vanguard novels and you look at the character of Diego Reyes, you know, a guy who was in charge of a starbase who had a, a a bigger remit than just one starship, you see some similarities there. And I think that that's an interesting place to put a character like Mm -hmm. Riker in. He's like, okay, man, you know, you're flying a desk. And he's like, well, I'm not going to fly a desk. I'm going to do it my way. You know, so he's, he's found a way to fly a desk and still be on board a starship. And that's just the kind of thing that Riker would do because he's the guy who finds a different way around things. You know, that very much that kind of Kirkian sort of attitude that he puts out there. Mm -hmm. And, um, and hopefully, that will continue to be interesting and continue to put him into interesting circumstances as, as we move forward. You know, I I didn't want to do the thing that, you know, that we see with Kirk is that Kirk gets to be an admiral for a while. And after a while he gets bored with it. We go back to him being a captain again. I'm not saying that that won't happen with Riker, you know, maybe in future books, the decision might be made to sort of put him back on the, in the command chair. But I think for now, I'm interested in exploring how that being an admiral stuff is going to work on him as a character.
2: Well, and I was thinking back when you talked about Reyes from Vanguard, I was also thinking about, because I've always felt like Cisco is admiral material, because he's already proved big-picture thinking from his time on Deep Space Nine, worrying about the Bajoran sector, and then, of course, helping run a war with uh, Admiral Ross and help win a war. So, you know, that, too, was in my mindset, is that Riker's having to make that transition from, you know, smaller thinking like you were talking about too, yeah, we're we're talking about the entire Alpha Quadrant Federation. That's 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 Riker's bag now. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so it's, it's all about the belt buckle. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's interesting you bring up uh, Cisco's situation because, you know, he kind of starts off, even though, you know, at the beginning of the DS9, he's a commander. But he starts off as a guy who has to have that bigger picture thinking because he's, you know, he's on the star base and he's not in charge of just a ship. He's essentially in charge of like an entire solar system's worth of of issues and problems. Uh, and then, as the show unfolds, you know, in later seasons, he he becomes the captain of Defiant, and and his focus changes. It kind of narrows down a little bit more, even though he has that sort of larger stuff going on. You know, the the larger issues of the war, and also his his personal situation as the emissary, and those kind of things. And that, again, I think is is a cool exploration of of what the kind of differing levels of responsibility do to a person, and I, I find that interesting. And as Riker is, as I've always said, you know, Riker is one of my favorite characters on Star Trek, and I like the idea of putting him through that and seeing seeing how he responds to it.
2: I did want to ask about the the new character that you brought on board the Titan uh, from the Enterprise episode North Star, which I love that somebody was referencing Enterprise and an episode that I actually kind of really enjoyed North Star because it was so strange uh, and just out of the blue in season three. Um, But I, not only that, but Ethan, to me, it almost felt like I had tripped back in some ways, <laughs> but on board the Titan. So I'm going to love you forever for bringing that feeling back to Star Trek, that old southern, you know, good old boy. <laughs> I just, I love it. So just talk about kind of adding that kind of dynamic into something like the strange dynamic that is the t- Titan anyway.
1: <laughs> well, I... I wanted to introduce um, some new characters in this this novel. And I wanted to pick somebody who is kind of, you know, a mid-level kind of character who could get into trouble and, and, you know, wasn't necessarily wearing plot armor, you know, who could, you know, turn up in the story and maybe get killed and there'd still be some sort of like, you know, jeopardy about him. And I went through a lot of different ideas, you know, I was going through all of the different sort of Star Trek species and I was thinking, well, I don't want it to be just an ordinary plain vanilla human, I want to make, make it a little bit different, but not too kind of crazy wild alien, so people couldn't empathize with it. And I've always been a huge fan of Westerns. And I love North Star as an episode because it kind of, to me, it harks back to the you know the, the the planet of the hats type trope of like you know from the original series. or it's planet of yes. the it's planet of the people from the, who are Nazis. It's planet of the uh, the the Chicago nineteen twenties, right? It's planet of the Romans, and so the idea that there would be planet of the cowboys. Oh yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. And so, you know, when that episode ends, uh, you don't really hear any more about the the sort of circumstance that they were in. And I was thinking, okay, well, you know, how would that evolve? Here we are, you know, decades later, and would that culture still exist or would it have been flattened out? And I just liked the idea that there was there was this planet out there that North Star in, in the in, in the sort of current era had evolved and the two factions, you know, made their peace, but they'd kept that sort of Western flavor because I just think that's really cool. So I decided, right, okay, um, Ethan Kaizaki's going to be that guy. And I wanted to do that kind of, you know, um, that kind of, down home, good old boy kind of thing going on there. You know, he has that sort of easy kind of farm boy charm, but there's a little bit more going on underneath it. You know, and he has a secret. You know, that that I'm not going to reveal for a while yet. That kind of marbles his character is the reason why he's actually on the ship. Is you know he's running from something, and uh, maybe in future stories, you know that what that is will will, will come to the fore. And uh, and I just found that as I started to put the character together, he almost wrote himself. So, I tried to make him you know all of the things that that makes that kind of character fun, but also chuck some stuff in there as well that doesn't make him he's not a complete stereotype, you know he's not everything you would expect from sort of you know the the quintessential space cowboy, but there is a little bit of that stuff going in there as well.
0: well, speaking of characters who have secrets, of course, the other new character you introduce is uh Commander Sarai, uh, who I thought was very fascinating and brings a really interesting dynamic uh and of course at the very end, her big secret is kind of revealed to the audience, but of course not to the rest of the Titan crew. Uh, talk a little bit about kind of the genesis of that character and bringing that dynamic into into the story.
1: Well, Sarai was um, a, a minor bit plot character that we had in, in the Fall series. Um, and she was somebody who had fallen into line with Shan Anjar and, and his plans for this kind of, you know, hawkish federation that was much more militaristic. And um, I think I'd, I'd done a few little bits and pieces of, of stuff with her, but it was Dave Mack who'd done the most with her in, uh, in his novel. And I can remember chatting to him about her and saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking about introducing this new character uh, as, the, as the first officer um, for, the, for, for the ship. And I'd been looking around, saying, "Who have we got? Who's just kind of lying around? Who hadn't been used? Who I could put in?" And I came across Sarah, and I thought she's perfect because immediately anybody who's read the fall will characterise her as a bad guy. And I thought that to me is interesting: is if I take that character and put them on the bridge of the ship in a command position, they've got immediately got a lot of baggage to deal with because of the fallout from the fall. You know how all the other characters on the ship are going to deal with it. All of the readers are going to come to it with baggage, with kind of preconceptions about who she is. And that to me is fun because I can play with those preconceptions and, you know, maybe prove some of them true and then prove that, you know, some of them aren't, that you don't have the full story. And David done a really good job just kind of setting her up with all this backstory. And I remember I called him and I said to him, look, how are you planning to run this? Are you going to do some stuff with this character in one of your novels? And he said, I hadn't really thought about it. So he basically gave me his approval to to take it on and he uh he was saying when he wrote her in the first scene she when she appears a lot of the max story stuff he said just kind of came out of the ether as he was writing it you know it wasn't planned it was just like oh this makes sense that she, you know she had this you know event that took place in her past and that you know that she'd been in starfleet intelligence and that she you know had a captain's mast and been you know put, put up in in front of uh, a, a tribunal for events that had taken place so she was carrying this this kind of dark event in her past. And all of that to me is great grist for the character mill. So I wanted to take this character who has this massive chip on their shoulder about what's happened to them and put them on the bridge of, of Titan where everybody on Titan knows each other very, very well. And they're all like, you know, a well-oiled machine. And then just throw somebody into that group who no one likes and say, you have to work together and then force them into a situation where, you know, they have to do what they do. Um, and Sarai just, you know, she, she came together really well. I mean, she's just like kind of unrepentantly who she is. And if you don't like her, she does not give a damn. It's all about, you know, I want to get the job done. And, you know, I've, I'm, you know, this kind of like, you know, the, this ice queen sort of character, she's very cold and unfeeling, but of course that's not really all she is. You know, she's, she does have, there's more going on underneath that and maybe you were not seeing who she is right now, but there's a lot of, she, she has a, she has an interesting road to go down, I think. And that's what I find interesting about her is she's a character you can put into a situation and every scene she's gonna be in, she will grow and change for the reader. We don't know that much about her. So there's a lot of there's a lot of um there's a lot of places that she can go. And I like that about the character.
2: Well, and super spoiler alert for everyone here, because uh I'm going to talk about the very end of the book with James here. Uh, you give this mystery that she's on the ship to watch Riker and Vale, and it, it, we don't know exactly who she's reporting to. We can only speculate, but, oh, man, it, it's it's adding another layer to... Is she reporting to somebody in Starfleet? Is it, it who, What is going on here, and are we going to... Has Starfleet not learned its lesson yet? Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: or is something else going on?
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like we just, you have opened up a serious can of worms, my friend. <laughs> oh, that's, that, and that's exactly the point
1: of it. You know, is that, I mean, through the course of Sight Unseen, you know, Sarai does grow as a character. You know, she does, some of the rougher edges do get softened. Not a lot, just a little. Um, but I wanted to show her, you know, as somebody who's, you know, she's all about her duty. And, and that's what that scene is about is that, you know, she's, she has this, clandestine mission while, while she's on the ship, is not only to do the job that she's there to do, which is be first officer, but she's also reporting to somebody. And that kind of spun out to me of the idea that when the events of the fall kind of coagulated and, and every, everything started to kind of go back to normal, you know, there would be people inside and outside Starfleet who would not be happy with the way that the chips fell. And I think there's even a moment where... um vale is thinking about why was i given sarai you know why didn't i get the opportunity to choose my own first officer because the hint is there is that she probably would have promoted tuvok up to the Mm -hmm. position of first officer and um and i think she kind of looks upon this and says well maybe it's because because of all the things that we did all the times that we kind of pulled on our leash a little too hard and now maybe this is somebody kind of saying we're watching you you know we put this person on your ship. And if we hadn't put this person on the ship, maybe you would not be captain. Maybe you would be in a much more unpleasant situation. And I think Sarai in some ways is a, is a kind of um, an indicator for the other characters. Is like not to, you know, you watch what you're doing because there's somebody on the ship who's keeping an eye on you.
2: It reminds me of two different things. One is the, the political situation uh, in Star Trek six, where there is a, you know, a faction of Starfleet that obviously doesn't want peace with the Klingons. But then at the same time, Stry also kind of reminds me of, like, the hunt for October with the political officer that you yeah. would have to have on a ship when, you know, uh, you're in the Russian Navy or any part of the military. You would have that loyalty officer almost. And that's, that's the other thing she reminds me of. And it's it's like a scary thought that's, that Starfleet has introduced, you know, loyalty officers into the ranks uh at least here on titan yeah there is a little bit of that stuff going on i mean hunt for october is one of my favorite
1: novels you know and i like i've always liked the idea of the political officer and in a way i've always thought that that's kind of like the job the diplomatic officer or the ship's counselor performed you know which was you know like a morale officer making sure everybody's happy whereas a political officer kind of like you know is a little bit more serious about making you toe the line you know and Mm -hmm. making sure that you you salute the right way and, and sing the right um, you know, national anthem and that kind of thing. But yeah, I think that all of that is, is stuff that falls out of the fact that what we're dealing with in the Federation now in the novels is a post-war society, is that we've gone from this massive Borg invasion and then the, you know, the shake-up of the, of the fall, and you have this generation of people who've grown up in the ashes of that and they're now kind of pulling themselves out of it. And you have that generation plus the generation that's, you know, experienced that and all the stuff that's come before. And there is tension between the two of them and, and the society is trying to sort of find a, a, a new equilibrium. And of course, on top of all of that, they've got all the pressures from the outside as well, from the Typhon Pact and other species. And, and then the new enemy that gets introduced in this book as well, is they've got a lot of outside influences acting on them. And, you know, that's, a, that's a, a, a difficult sort of map for them all to navigate. And again, you know, that's where great drama comes out. You put characters under pressure and you see what pops out of it. Mm, reminds me of the great Billy Joel song. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing in this novel and, and something that the Starfleet characters really exemplify, I think, and a lot of the characters have learned, but not all of them, is that people are stronger together. So, you know, the Titan crew, the Dynak at the end realized this, and the, uh, the rebel Solane, whose name escapes me at the moment, um, they take that message to heart, uh, but the Solane are just really do not. And the sad part to me was that they could be helped by the Federation, but because of their xenophobia and their basically extreme superiority complex, they've ensured that that won't happen. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the mindset of the Solane and kind of the juxtaposition between them and the Federation characters.
1: Well, you know, that, that scene at the ending, is, is, it's a Star Trek scene that we've seen a bunch of times, which is mm-hmm. where, you know, our characters have encountered an alien race and they've had a bit of a dust up. And then they kind of say, well, here's the olive branch, you know, and maybe, maybe if we can kind of have a conversation, if we can just put our hands off our guns for five minutes, and maybe we can do something good. And most of the time, because Star Trek is, you know, an uplifting uh, and generally a positive kind of situation, is the the answer is usually well, okay, we'll give it a go, and and that kind of happens in this book with with some of the characters, but with the mm-hmm. Salani, I thought just for once, let's have them meet somebody who says, you know what, and they throw the olive branch back in their face, and mm-hmm. say, you know what, no, we hate you, and we want to fight you, and and you know, and like you say, they are aggressive and superior, and and they see. You know, they have it's a society that's evolved to such a situation where they don't see other people as their equals. And, you know, sad to say there are societies like that in the real world. And I think, you know, part of Star Trek's job has always been to kind of hold this mirror up to the real world. So I wanted to show a little bit of that, is what happens if you come across somebody who has extreme views that are so embedded that you have to confront the reality that, you know what, you can't change everybody's point of view. You can't Mm -hmm. bring everybody around. And sometimes you have to say, you know, well, okay, if, if that's the way it's going to be, then okay, you know, and, but if you, you know, you, and if you attack us, we're going to have to defend ourselves. And that's the situation that, you know, the, the Riker kind of lays it out and says, well, you know, we, we gave you the chance. And, you know, next time, you know, if you come at us, we may not offer it to you again. Um, but that's leavened by the, the fact that we have the, the situation uh, with the, the Dinak and the Siari, and the who are the, uh, the kind of the, the Splinter faction. And they are two species who, you know, are are very much uh, on opposing sides. And by the intervention of the Federation characters and by the experiences that everybody has, is they get to an opportunity where they say, look, we can make peace here. We can work together. And so there is some sort of hope, even though in this other situation, you know, things didn't go well.
2: Well, and I liked that you did that uh, with the Solanee. And because it it was a reminder that uh, you know, Star Trek, as you said, it, it has this this goal of of pointing us and pointing out things that we need to remember uh, and need to be cognizant of that are in our world and have been in our world, and you know the Solane were a reminder of, it's the, of the worst like terror worst regimes that we've ever had and the things that still go on in our world you know uh of seeing somebody as you know less than human even though they see them as less than Solani. so you can you can do whatever you want to them because they're they they're not a they're they're not a being worth uh you know saving or or even talking to you know um so it's just a lower form of being or heck. You can just change the name and you can rationalize terrible, terrible things. And I I felt like that was such an important message even in today's world because that happens all the time.
1: It's totally that. It's the you know what the Solani are doing is, is you know, the the process of othering, you know, is that they're looking at anyone who's not them and saying, You you are less than us. You, you know, you are worthless and therefore, as you say, we can do whatever we like, you know, horrible, terrible things, unconscionable things, because, you know, we have made this kind of mental distinction that, you know, you are less than us and therefore, as we see it, it it's not a problem for us to, to behave in these in these terrible, terrible ways. And they're justifying it by um, saying, well, you know, we're doing this in order to, to save our civilization, even though in the course of the story, Riker says, you know, you don't have to do it this way, we'll help you find a different way but it's so embedded in, in their culture that, the, that they won't do it. And they've even, you know, to the point that they've hunted down people who don't agree with them amongst their own species and tried to eradicate that that kind of view. And uh, I think that that's, um, you know, as as you say, it is something that sadly we do see in the real world, but I think it also puts our characters in an interesting circumstance to have to deal with that kind of extremity of view in a way that is, intelligent and reasoned and, and decent
0: yeah i think one of the most terrifying things in the book that i read was was when they were asked why are you doing this why do you do this and the answer basically was because we can and we don't care
1: <laughs> i mean you know the, if you go back to the original episode with the solana it, you know schisms that that's a very dark scary haunted house of a story you know and it and it deals with the you know it's it's the it's the alien abduction episode right and it's mm-hmm. And, and that stuff is just, man, super creepy. And and so I wanted to, you know, tap back into some of that kind of element, you know, but also uh, touch on a, a, a bunch of other questions about like, you know, what would motivate a, a species to do that to somebody else? But also to touch in on the questions about how it affects people who've had that happen to them. If you look at the characters of, of Riker and Rager in the course of this story is, you know, they're the two characters on board the ship who had that experience back in the day on board the enterprise and they're both still carrying it around with them. And it colors their point of view, you know, from Rega's point of view, it's something that, you know, almost forced her out of Starfleet because it was so traumatic. Mm-hmm. And for Riker, it's something that he's kind of put away in a box and he thought oh, I've dealt with this, but he realizes that he really, he really didn't. And it's, you know, it, it becomes more terrifying for him because this threat reappears. And at this time it takes his wife and daughter, you know, and so it's for any sort of father and husband, a, a terrible sort of situation to, to come across, and I like the idea of, of of putting him in a situation where you know he comes across a group of what he thinks are the beings who have abducted his family, and his first reaction is an aggressive one, mm-hmm. and that's not actually the right reaction because it turns out the people he's talking to are not the people who did this, you know, and and that's very much the salient lesson of like you know just because a dog bites you, not every dog will bite you. Mm-hmm but you have to be careful that, you know, is this a dog that's going to bite me or is it a different kind of dog? You know, and it's the, that circumstance is interesting to put a character like Riker in because he's, his emotions are very close to the surface, you know? And I thought it was believable that he would react strongly to this kind of situation, but also, you know, he's, he's the kind of guy who has the ability to grow and change and, um, and accept things that other people might find difficult. And, and that's kind of his arc through the course of this novel.
2: It also brings up for me, uh, especially with the the Solani characters, um, th- this idea of you know what would you do to survive, and when that is your only thought process, what will you rationalize, and and where will that bring you? Um, you know, when you're when you're living only purely for yourself and and survival, and and it will bring you to very very terrible places, as we see, like. Your whole means of existence becomes making use of others and putting down anything that stands in your way because nothing else matters but you and and that, that's that is another i mean i it's a great logical extreme for people i think to be able to see of a life lived not together but just just uh with your one group mm-hmm I mean, the, the thing about,
1: I've always thought that the, the, the true interesting things about characters who are quote unquote bad guys is that nobody wakes up in the morning and says, you know, today I will eat a baby and set fire the kittens, right? You know, today I will be a villain. It's most people who are, who are villainous in fiction and in the real world believe that they are doing the right thing mm-hmm. and believe they are doing it for right reasons. And you can look at the Solani and say, well, you know, they, they have a good reason for this is that they're trying to preserve their entire culture and who would not want to do that? But it's the number of lines they've crossed to get to where they are. You know, little by little, they've made all of these decisions which have pushed them further and further away from being decent people into making choices that hurt others. To the point that they don't even see it as a problem anymore. They've gone so far. They can't even see the line they've crossed. They're so far away from it
2: the line is a dot to you
1: <laughs> yeah you know it's like you know the the other characters can say well you know look over your shoulder that thing that little dot far far away from you that's the line you crossed and you've crossed every line since and and now you don't even realize that you're doing it with every choice that you make and that i find interesting and you know we we have the with the with the dissident characters you know we have the people from the same species who who are aware of that who have looked at it and gone what are we doing you know let's put the brakes on Let, let's try and reverse reverse the
2: circumstance well and and for them too the the solane they're doing what's what's convenient for them you know it because it would be so much harder to deal with actual change you know to 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 do something different to to do the hard thing you know they're they're doing what's convenient and we do tons of terrible things in our world for the sake of convenience mm-hmm.
1: yeah very much so it's you know, here's, here's a culture who, are, who has, you know, they are offered an olive branch, but in order to accept that, it would mean they have to change who they are. They have to change the way they see the universe, and they're just not willing to do that. And they'd rather go the hard way, you know, they'd rather be bloody minded about it. And that may, as you know, as Riker says, that, well, that may end up being the, you know, the death sentence for your species because you couldn't change. And I think that's a very Star Trek lesson to to put out there to say like, you know, if you're not willing to embrace change, if if you're afraid of things that are unlike you, and if you allow that to rule you, eventually, you know, that's going to destroy you.
2: I loved the fact that Dan touched on this, that there is this horror aspect that you really tapped into. So I thought it was a perfect book to be reading here in October, green <laughs> Halloween, uh, yeah. but talk about kind of. Uh, you know, you had a great mix of this kind of sci-fi horror. You know, obviously, you said schisms. It was a really creepy episode. But talk about ratcheting up that tension in this book and kind of, uh, kind of creating that horror aspect for Star Trek. Well, you know, there's there's the
1: germ of uh, a story pitch that I put together for for Voyager many many years ago. Um, that was I always thought was a really cool story idea. That I never got to to sell, and I remember kicking it around at some of the story meetings, and everybody said like, "Yeah, we really really like this, but we couldn't find a way to make it work." And that was, um, you remember the the shower scene in Psycho, yes, where, you, where yes. you take like you know a perfectly ordinary thing, and you make it this kind of crucible of terror, you know. So you see that movie. And then next time you get in a shower, I defy anybody not to watch that movie. Pull the curtain back and just for a second think about seeing a shadow <laughs> of some scumbag with a with a butcher knife, right? And and yet it's this common or garden thing that just exists in all of our homes. And I was thinking, well, what's the what's the Star Trek equivalent of of that thing? And I thought the replicator. Mm. Everybody's house in Star Trek. Every room, every every room you see in Star Trek has got a replicator in it. And it's just this ordinary thing that you go to and you get your cup of tea or grey hot, you know, and your jum jar stick or whatever it is you want out of, your, out of your replicator. And I thought, well, what if that could be perverted in some kind of way? You know, it's it comes down to the kind of, you know, the killers inside the house already. You know, the idea that this thing that, that you think is ordinary suddenly becomes a, a conduit for, for terrible stuff to happen. And so there is this whole sequence where, you know, the ship's replicators are turned against the crew, This this common ordinary thing and it becomes very very creepy and and, um all of the characters have to deal with this this situation that's like kind of spiraling out of control so that was kind of where that came from and also the the idea of turning the enterprise a little bit into the sort of haunted house itself by you know making the 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 ship lose power and it's adrift and everybody's separated and you have all these different characters in different parts of the ship who can't communicate who don't know what's going on having to deal with you know this, this threat that is you know in danger of basically taking over and destroying the entire vessel, and um, and that was fun to do. Just you know to, to do the whole kind of spook house kind of thing with the Enterprise, have the characters dealing with what to them is familiar territory being turned into the unfamiliar and the scary.
2: That's that's such a a fun thing, and I, again I just love that you know we're we're here in October at least when we're talking and recording when the book came out, and it's just a, a perfect like Halloween mm-hmm. book for Star Trek to have at this point. <laughs> I guess it's kind of like, you
1: know, imagine in your own circumstance, if you were locked in your house, all the windows were blacked out and your toaster started attacking you, right? That's the <laughs> that's what's going on <laughs> to the people on board the ship, right? Um, on board no, the,
2: not on board the toaster the of death.
1: You can hear it coming up, the, c- coming up the stairs. It's coming after you. You can smell the bread cooking. It's coming after
0: you. <laughs> Yeah. And that was terrifying. Kind of that realization on the bridge that like every single crewman's quarters has a replicator in it. And they're just spewing out these creatures. That was, I I remember thinking, reading at that point, like, how are they going to overcome this? Like, that's just like, if I were a junior officer on the bridge, I'd be like, well, I'm heading for an escape pod. Good luck, everyone.
1: (laughs) That's it. We're screwed. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that was a, it was just a it was a fun idea and it it came out really, really well. And I think it just um some you know, sometimes you have an idea and you can't find the right place for it. And that was, you know, I pitched it for Voyager all those years ago. But like any other writer will tell you, you know, never throw any ideas away, always keep mm-hmm. them. And I knew somewhere I would find the right place for it. And then when I was writing this story, I was like, Oh, this is it. This is this is how it dovetails with, with this narrative and it fits nicely with the whole kind of the creepy vibe of of the you know, the schisms storyline and, and the Solana, you know touching on again and that whole creepy alien abduction sort of thing. You know, I was looking at movies like uh, Fire in the Sky, um, Close Encounters mm-hmm. a little bit and also mm-hmm. um, Communion, you know, all have that sort of very spooky alien abduction thing going on. I wanted to, I wanted to get that vibe. Because, you know, when you talk about alien abduction ideas, it's like, well, this is very much a kind of idea that's rooted in the real world in the present day. It's like, you know, we're talking about characters who fly around in space and meet aliens all the time. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) for them, it wouldn't be weird. So, but how do you make it creepy? How do you make it scary? And I always felt like Schisms was a really cool idea for an episode, kind of let down a bit by the kind of space fish monks that they did. And, you know, I think if you if you read the, uh, Larry Nemechek's, um TNG Companion, he talks a little bit about that story. And he said how, you know, that it perhaps wasn't shot in a way that made it look as scary as it could be. Mm-hmm. But I think that there was definitely the of a very cool idea there. And, and they always said that they were going to bring those guys back and they never found a way to do it. So I thought this is a good opportunity to, to bring these characters back. And it also dovetails nicely with the place that the characters are in at the beginning of the story, which is dealing with these new circumstances. And then suddenly we throw in this threat from the past, mm-hmm. which kind of throws all of that into sharp relief.
2: That's something that I noticed, you know, that uh recently with uh Titan, they've been dealing with some old TNG nemesises. You know, uh the same thing happened in Takedown as well. Um for, for you I'd love to kind of hear about the idea of bringing back things and how do you balance that with the new things you create and bringing back old things and making it feel organic and not like, oh, they're just, you know, running out of ideas or something like that.
1: Sure. Well, the, uh, the there's that kind of, you know, Trek nerd kind of impulse where you kind of go, <laughs> oh, those were
2: really cool. I'd love to see those
1: guys again. And it's but you don't want to keep doing the equivalent of like a greatest hits collection, right? You know, here's the same song you heard before, just played slightly differently. You know, you don't want to do a cover version of the same story.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: the, the key thing is 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 to sort of take that idea. I mean you, you know you talk about takedown as a good example of it as well. Is he doing the John Jackson Miller they're doing exactly the same kind of thing I think coming from the same place as me is saying, okay, take this idea that was a great story that left this door open and say, well, let's go back to that place uh, and let's explore some of that, but let's do something new with it. That's the key thing is like, you know, open it out. Don't do the same thing Mm -hmm. again. Bring something new to it and then uh, leaven that with with some new story elements as well. So it's not like you're doing the same thing all over again. It's like, you know, so you shine a different light on the existing element, but you add something new to it that you broaden it out.
2: And I think, yeah, that's something that when you're when you're working with uh, even the characters, that was something that it's like you got to keep giving them something that helps them continue to grow. And that's one of the things that I love about the continuity that we get in the books like this is that we're watching the progression of the characters that we loved watching originally, but they're not just stuck in the same place.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because, you know, you look at the first... When you look at Schisms, that story is about the characters on the Enterprise being confronted with a strange mystery that they can't understand, and by the end of the episode, they understand that this weird thing is going on. In Sight Unseen, what you have is characters being confronted by a strange mystery and then understanding that it's something they've encountered before, but it's completely different from, from what their experiences were. And so they think, oh, we know what this problem is. We know how to deal with it. And, of course, the kicker is actually, no, you don't. This is completely different from what you thought it was. and
2: mm. Things
1: are turned around. And, it, and so it challenges not only the, the preconceptions of the characters, but hopefully the, the preconceptions of the readers who will go, oh, it's these species. I know how that's going to work out. It's like, no, no, actually, it's, it's coming from a completely different direction. So you're carried, mm. hopefully, towards a conclusion that you aren't expecting when you start reading the book.
2: You have been you know, kind of working with, with Titan for a while now and I know you have a great love for Riker as a character and I was kind of wondering, you know, being with these, you know, this crew and these characters so long, what are some of the things that have been uh, the most, you know, like personal for you writing these characters and, and getting the opportunity to continue to explore them and some of the ones that have really surprised you even? Well, that's a really great question.
1: Um I like I, I love the 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 Rikers as a family unit. I think that's that's really interesting to to play around with that and explore some of the the issues that came from that. I mean, the the first Titan novel I did, Synthesis, ended up being a book about um, parenting, really, which is something that I haven't experienced in 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 my own life. But it's something I'm I'm fascinated by, and I, and I think as a writer and as a human being and as as James Swallow, you know, I, I got to ex- I got to kind of I know, get, get in touch with maybe my inner dad in a little way by, you know, by writing that stuff about, about Riker. And so that was that was a fun experience for me. Um, I love the ensemble of the characters. You know, we, we've got all these really, really great characters and we have, and as writers, we've got a great opportunity to bring new characters in and, and to shake things up a bit. And we don't have to be worrying about our effects budget you know so if we have a character who looks like a kind of wind chimes (laughs) or a lava lamp you know we can we can have a character who looks like we can have a giant lobster guy or you know as it doesn't just have to be a guy with a um some lumpy lumpy forehead makeup you know and and once we get into all those ideas about strange alien species and and how they interact with species who are like us that's fascinating to write about and to me, it feels very Star Trek, Is you know, the idea of, of Titan being this microcosm of the Federation, is that the most species diverse ship in the entire Federation, and that it's almost, you know, I think I, I, I have Riker say this in um, articulating it in, in a speech he gives at the beginning of the book, where he says how Titan is almost like the, the, the exemplar of that ideal and that you could park that starship in orbit around any planet and say, you know what the Federation is? It's this, these people come and look around this ship, come and see how all these different disparate groups from different worlds all work together. This is what the United Federation of Planets is. And I love that ideal. And that's to me feels like it's something that's the very core of Star Trek, that that ideal marbles the entire entire saga for every single series and Titan, you know, puts that front and center and that is really really fun to write and I never get tired of that idea.
0: Well with this novel you've set up a lot of new elements for Titan going forward and I'm just curious uh where do you see Titan going from here and will you get an opportunity to chart that course?
1: (laughs) Another good question. Well you know um when I finished writing this the one of the things I did for myself was I kind of made up a, a bunch of notes a sort of direction document for You know, what I think would be interesting and, uh, you know, a few ideas about, well, maybe I could do this and maybe I could do that. I mean, you know, there's, I haven't been commissioned to write another Titan novel yet. I don't know if, if another, if another author is going to be brought in, you know, because it is a multi-author series and, and it may be somebody else who picks up the next story um i certainly do have some ideas in fact in in the last sort of couple of weeks when i this this is the kind of thing that always happens is i'm working on one particular project and ideas for a completely different project will start buzzing around inside my head and taking up all my brain space and i have been thinking about an idea for uh another titan novel so i'm just kicking that around so far i don't have the whole thing yet but i have an idea about what i'd like to do next um and i think there are a lot of interesting places to go you know like i say I, i've put them close to the federation but not too close so we can still do we've still got the whole kind of toolkit of stories that we can do so we can we can do weird alien stuff we can do strange new worlds we can do a story where the characters can come back to earth if they need to or to a you know a planet that we're familiar with and i think that's a, that's a great place to put them in because it gives them a lot of opportunities and a lot of uh, possible avenues to travel down
2: Well, you have been working, I I know, on some really cool things. And so everybody obviously needs to go out and get a copy of this because... It's a it's a great book, but I wanted Thank you to you. be able to share the other things that you've been working on, what's out there. I'm, I mean, you've been doing some really fun things with uh, you've been working with Disney Infinity and their Star Wars property. So, yeah, tell everybody about the other things that you've been working on and things that they can find out there and what's coming up next for James.
1: Uh well, the the, the Star Wars stuff, that's been an absolute blast. I mean, um uh, you know, as as a sort of 40-something nerd, obviously I am a child of the Star Wars generation and I've always wanted to write something officially Star Wars. You know, I've, I've worked on some uh, licensed magazines and publications back in the day, but I've never got an opportunity to write, um, you know, fiction for for the Star Wars universe. And uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the uh, Disney Infinity, it's it's basically everything that Disney owns every every different world so marvel comics star wars and all of the disney characters it's a it's a game for a family game that enables you to to get these characters these kind of toy figures that you place on a little platform and they appear in a video game and you can play through these narrative play sets and you also have this kind of digital lego kind of minecraft style system where you can build your own levels and there's a huge community of people of all ages who, who build these incredibly complicated sort of uh, mini-games. It's really, really amazing, fantastic creativity. And it was really fun to be a part of that. I worked on a playset called Twilight of the Republic, which is based on the uh, the prequel trilogy and the, the Clone Wars cartoon series. And I also did some work on the uh, Star Wars Rebels characters, writing dialogue for, for all these characters as they appear in the game. And it was... Um, I had an absolute whale of a time, I've got to say. I worked with a great studio here, got a bunch of guys called Ninja Theory, based here in Cambridge. Uh, really, really clever, really, really talented guys. Fantastic game programmers. Um, and it was amazing. I got to I got to go out to to Lucasfilm headquarters and in San Francisco and hang out with those guys and see loads of sort of preview stuff for star wars rebels and uh you know and that for me as a star wars fan was it's it's kind of like you know the the pilgrimage to the holy land of fandom right you know you, <laughs> uh, and when we when we walked into the building you know there's props and stuff from all the different films and oh, you could not walk two feet without seeing something amazing it's like my god that's the ark of the covenant and look <laughs> over there there's uh you know there's a Star Wars Stormtrooper from, from 1977 from Tunisia, and, and here's R2D2. And, and there's like, you know, this prop from this movie and this prop from that film. And there's a lot of great, there's some Star Trek stuff in there as well, you know, because Industrial Light and Magic all worked on, you know, some of those movies. Oh, just, yeah. Mm, just seeing that stuff is like, we were, we were going to this meeting, and I kept stopping every couple of feet, going, <laughs> wow, look at that. And they're like, you know, you, you have got this meeting to go to, Mr. Swallow? Yeah, I'll be with you in a sec. I just want to look at this thing. <laughs> You know, isn't that cool? And it's funny, one of the guys who worked there said to me, You can always tell someone who's it's their first time because they do exactly what you just did, which is just stop and go, Oh, wow, 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 you know. And uh and so that was really amazing. And they're a super talented bunch of guys and very, very hot on on, you know, what is and is not Star Wars. And uh it was it was a real pleasure to work with them and I hope they get to do more stuff for them in the future.
2: It's funny because uh, I was playing that game with my brother in law and we were playing the Twilight of the Republic. Um, and uh, because it's Star Wars and it's so much fun. Uh, and then I was thinking to myself, James Swallow wrote these lines that I'm, that's awesome.
1: You know, one of the coolest moments? Um, it's. It's a small thing, but I really got this kind of amazing fanboy thrill out of it was I had to sat down and, and I had the first thing I had to do was write the opening text crawl that scrolls up the screen, you know. And and I was like, Oh my, I'm I'm writing a Star Wars text crawl. And and when the first time I saw it, you know, going up the screen with the music and I was like, Wow, you know. There's there's oh, been a few times awesome. in my career when stuff small little things like that have happened. I, I can remember the first time I got to write a line of dialogue for Spock. And it was the first time I'd ever written yeah. a TOS character. And I, and I remember writing, it was, it was in a Mirror Universe story I did for the Shards and Shadows anthology. And I wrote this line of dialogue and I kind of stopped and was like, wow, here's a character that has meant a lot to me all through the years and has given me a lot of enjoyment. And now I get to put words in his mouth and, and write a story about him. And it is, it is fantastic. It's, a, it's very rewarding to be able to, I guess, in a way, give something back to, to a fictional world that's given me so much enjoyment and pleasure over the years. So, yeah, it was really, really great to work on uh, Disney Infinity. And then uh, beyond that, well, um, I have my my next Star Trek novel is going to be coming out in February. And, of course, next year, 50th anniversary. So it's a very big deal. Um, I think, actually, I'm not sure, but I think I'm going to be the first TOS novel out of the gate next year. So I get to lead the charge. And just Mm -hmm. this week, I got to see the cover artwork for it. it's very cool oh nice yeah i'm really really pleased about it i think um star trek.com are going to do like a an exclusive cover reveal sometime soon but it's really really nice piece of artwork great you know great classic starship style cover on the you know and that book's called the latter fire and that's set um at in the in the kind of the last couple of years of the five-year mission so it's sort of at the end of the thir- end of the 3 years of the live action show beginning of the 2 years of the animate series so there's a kind of little bit of crossover going on there and uh and that was a lot of fun that was me kind of you know ticking off a box on my uh writer to-do list which is you know to write uh, uh, what i think of you know the classic era tos story that has that kind of larger than life brassy sort of fun action adventure stuff that to me was the, the the classic Trek stuff that I grew up enjoying so it's very much in the mold of you know the doomsday machine the immunity syndrome those kind of stories um and and that was a lot of fun to do that as well you know I had a great time when I, I wrote one scene where Spock actually gives somebody a neck pinch and I was like oh I get to write a neck pinch <laughs> scene that's so cool because and it was something I I hadn't even written it into my notes I was like oh I have to have this Happened, how's that work? And I was like, oh, I can write a neck pinch scene and it's not its not contrived, it actually makes sense. And that was so that was really great to do that. I, I had a great time with that. Um, and beyond that, um, a couple other video game projects which I can't really talk much about. Um, and next year, uh, also releasing on the same day as The Latter Fire, is uh, Deus Ex Mankind Divided, which is uh, the new video game in the Deus Ex series, which I also have been doing some writing on. And then beyond that, just a few other short story projects. But if um, you know, as always, if uh, if you guys want to keep an eye on my um, Twitter feed and my um, my um, social media pages, um, I will talk about everything I'm working on because, you know me, I'm super enthused about being a writer, and I love talking about my work.
0: Yeah, uh, why don't you let our listeners know uh, what your Twitter handle is and where they can find you online?
1: You can always find me on Twitter um, at JMSwallow, where I uh, attempt to be witty and clever and occasionally will post pictures of interesting things (laughs) I've seen. Um, And um, I'm also on uh, jamesswallow.blogspot.com, I think it is. Uh, You can find me there at that on on my site. Again, don't post as much as I should do, but occasionally I I put up stuff about new releases and sometimes run competitions and that kind of thing.
2: James, I love when you get to come on and, and talk star trek it's it's always so much fun and uh, i really appreciate you being such a great friend to the show too um i I really wanted to thank you for the kind words you had for uh the network and the show and and what you did for uh christopher jones uh, in this book (laughs) uh and giving him uh his own ship which is awesome very cool uh, making him a captain (laughs) so that that kind of thing um I, i just it warms my heart when, when the authors uh, do that kind of stuff, and, and uh, you've been a really special friend to us, and I really mm-hmm. just wanted to say thank you.
1: Well, well, thank you, guys. I mean, I, I really appreciate it as well. You know, it it's it, it's 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 so rewarding to have people like you and all the other guys out there who do the podcasts and, and, and run the websites and stuff because as writers, you know, we do what we do, and we kind of shoot it off into the void and go, well, I wrote that. I think it's kind of cool. I hope people liked it. You know, we don't really know it, but – it's it's great to have the the support of the fan base and, and to know that you guys enjoy what we do. Plus, the thing is, whenever I'm writing a crew for a ship, and I, I always need people's names, and I think, ah, oh, who's the <laughs> I don't know, who, who to put down here, you know? And and, and uh, I, I you know I love listening to to literary tracks anyway because you know it, it keeps me up to date on stuff that I haven't read. And it's always fascinating to hear you guys, you know, picking over the minutia of these of these stories. Because we listen, we pay attention, right? You know, when you guys <laughs> when you guys say something like, kind of, oh, maybe this leads into this, you know, we're
0: listening, going, hey, that's not a bad idea. Maybe I should do that.
1: Thing. <laughs> or, or, or alternatively, we'll go, ah, oh, he's guessed. I've got to do something completely different.
0: Well, hopefully, that doesn't happen too often.
1: <laughs> you know, oh my God, they've guessed the plot of the novel. It's like calling up, yeah, calling up the editor and saying, quick, quick, send it back. We have to change everything. Stop the presses. Now, that hasn't happened yet as far as i know but but yeah it's so you know uh thank you to you guys um, on on behalf of of all of the writers you know it's always great to have um have the support of, of the fan base out there and and also to everybody who who tunes in and listens and and, and buys the book you know because at the end of the day all of us who work on the books we are all fans you know and we're lucky enough to kind of get to do this stuff for a living and it's nice to know that the stories we write appeal to other people other than just ourselves, because we write stories that we want to see. I write the kind of stories that I like, and it's cool to know that other people like them too.
0: Well, very much so. Absolutely. And and it's just always a pleasure to be able to talk to you guys and, and have you on the show. Uh, so it's, it's really special to be able to do this. And we really thank you for that.
1: Well, thanks a lot. I, I would like to, you know, it's a shame really that here in the UK we don't get to do, uh, a lot of Star Trek conventions. Not We don't have hardly anywhere near as many of them uh, as you guys do. I did do a really great convention this year, actually, earlier on called uh, First Contact Day uh, with Una McCormack, and she and I are going to be going back and, and doing that again next year. And everybody's saying to me, come back to Shore Leave. Come back and do Shore Leave next mm-hmm. year. I did that a few years ago, and I would like to come back and, and do that again just to kind of fly the flag for the British contingent.
2: Yeah, that would be great. In fact, I would love to get to Shore Leave sometime just because of the author contingency there Uh, I'm always very disappointed that uh, Star Trek Las Vegas does not have a better relationship with the uh, Star Trek authors um, and has not made that a big deal since it's you know one of the few properties uh, that CBS is really carrying on right now so uh, I've got to get to to shore leave sometime
1: (laughs) yeah let me just put that out there anybody any uh, American Star Trek conventions who would like a British Star Trek author to come to your convention please call me (laughs)
2: awesome that's it every convention out there needs to be paying attention get James because yeah well and and, I mean as as getting to know you we've we've talked so much about so much Star Trek and and you can talk any part of Star Trek and I think that's what would make you great for any convention to have so guys out there get James thanks boys (laughs) thanks James have a a a great night
1: cool
0: well, Matthew, I mean, we have been spoiled uh, the last few weeks here getting to talk to all these authors and, you know, today's discussion with James Swallow. Wow. What what an awesome person to be able to talk to just about Star Trek in general and about his work in this really great Titan novel we got this month.
2: The, one of the things that I, I just, it always amazes me uh, doing this show is the relationship that i've i've gotten to to foster with uh, the different authors and uh, james is so much fun he's he's so effervescent when it comes to his love of of star trek and and his love of all things i mean james is one of those guys he just loves all things geeky you know and so hearing him geek out about uh you know getting to to work on star wars too you know it's it's the joy of being part of this and being in fandom and all of fandom and just embracing it, you know, and uh, I, I appreciate so much how um, all of these authors do that and it, it's so much fun to to just spend time with them and um, get to talk about their love and our love of all of these things geeky and James does such a great job of, of pouring that into his books and I think that's why I, there's never been a James Swallow book that I'm like, eh, you know not awesome <laughs> um you know james has has really um done a great job of of keeping me engaged and mm-hmm. in, in
0: all of his stories, yeah, wouldn't you just love to spend an evening at the pub with him just talking oh about Star Trek and oh, yeah, I could talk yep. with him for hours. That was really
2: great, I definitely could as well, so I'm so glad that James was here. I hope everybody enjoyed it. Get in touch with us. Let us know what you think uh, of the Titan series and the latest new Titan novel at trek.fm slash contact. Uh, Of course, you can check up with us uh, on Twitter at Trek.fm and Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm and, and then the Babel Conference. Great place to be. Uh, just type Babel into the search field on Facebook, go to the website at trek.fm and hit discussion on the menu bar, and you can get to the Babel Conference, and it's just a place for only listeners of Trek.fm to get together. Uh, and then, of course, the Goodreads group. Go check out what we're going to be reading next, what's coming up, and, and everything we've done, and all the discussions going on over there. And again, you can find the Goodreads group. Uh, just type Literary Treks into Goodreads, or you can go to our show page, any of the Literary Trek show pages, and you'll see the link there for Goodreads. Uh, really want to say thank you to Will Wynn and Ken Trip for their support and helping us bring Literary Treks to each week, and they do that as associate producers through Patreon. And Patreon is a really important thing for us here at the network. We're a listener-supported network. So we need the listeners to help us bring all of this content to you, whether it's the bandwidth we have, or all well, the downloads, all of the space that we have online that we have to host the shows. Um, Of course, uh, we've got all the things that we need uh, financially to to make sure that we bring you the best quality content out there for geekdom. And so just go to patreon.com slash trek fm and and see how you can be part of the team and we love to give back to you for doing that we've got exclusive content you can get early access to content and of course you could also be in the patreon roundtable as well with will Wynn and other listeners talking about star trek being on your own podcast every month so we'd love to have you as part of the team again go to patreon.com slash trek fm guys uh One of the things you can also do to really help the show and help it continue to grow and get bigger is that if you're an Apple user, hit that subscribe button. It does do something. It really helps us move up in the iTunes rankings as well as those star ratings and reviews. I know you hear us say that all the time. But it really is true that it makes a huge difference. If you're not an Apple user, though, you can listen to us on Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Windows Phone. You can go to the website at trek.fm and grab the MP3 file. Or you can also grab the RSS link and put that into any podcatcher. So, honestly, you can have Trek FM on the go all the time. (laughs) Uh, Now, Dan, when you're not uh, at home clutching your teddy bear, praying you don't get abducted, Late at night as you're trying to sleep, uh, where can we find you?
0: Oh, well, Matthew, I mean, it is pretty dark and scary. And did you just hear a little bit of clicking over there? <laughs> no, I, the, I think it was my imagination. Uh, anyway, uh, you can find me online at com. That's my website where I review Star Trek novels, both old and new. Uh, I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash Reviews and on Twitter at Treklit Reviews and my personal Twitter feed, which is at kertrats K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. And you can also find me on Instagram. I'm at kertrats 47. Uh, again, you know, I take some interesting pictures there. Not all of it's Star Trek, but sometimes some, you know, models that I'm working on or the Eagle Moss ships. Uh, so you can find some pretty interesting stuff on there. And Matthew, when you're not sitting in your quarters reading a book looking warily at your replicator as though it might turn on you at any moment where can we find you
2: i don't want any more replicated death balls coming out of that thing (laughs) that is i ah i am thinking about getting it removed from my quarters and just going down to the to the local replimat um because thing freaks me out uh when that's not happening or I'm not tweeting about my fears. You can find me on Twitter at Matt 2 Uh, I try not to take pictures of scary things, but uh, I'm on Instagram at M rushing. You can find me on the orb with Christopher Jones, where we do talk about deep space nine. That's the deep space nine podcast here on the network. You can also find me on the six Oh two club, like James talking about things like star Wars or, uh, any of the new things that have been coming out like The Martian or Pan or things like that. Uh, New, old, everything in between we try to talk about on that show. And then of course you can also find me on my own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com Well thank you so much for joining us and until next time live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.